This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. So there's an institutional bias in the way our healthcare system is set up, and that creates a lot of frustration for all of us who want to try to honor patient wishes and choices. Consider someone leaving a hospital after their care is completed at that location to return to their home and local community. As discharge plans are being made to continue their care, their healing, their rehabilitation, could there be ethical challenges that arise? Can there be biases that shape that plan because their ability, disability, or lack of family support systems or resources available in the community? What are the frameworks, tools, approaches, that could assist all involved. Our guests will offer their experience in these discharge planning dilemmas and offer the practical approaches that they have utilized every day. Joining us in the conversation in this episode are Debjani Mukherjee, trained as a clinical psychologist and clinical ethicist, is currently director of the Donnelly Ethics Program at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. She's also associate professor of physical medicine, rehabilitation, and medical education at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Preya Tarzny trained as a lawyer and also as a bioethicist. She also currently serves at the Donnelly Ethics Program at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and is a lecturer of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She also has an appointment as faculty lecturer at the University of Chicago McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. Dr. Kirsty Kirshner is a physician in physical medicine and rehabilitation that has practiced in this area for 30 years. She also has a background in clinical ethics and physical disability ethics and is a faculty member at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, where she directs the sub-theme of humanities and ethics for the College of Medicine. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Jenny, perhaps you could begin with offering us a clinical story that depicts the ethical challenges and discharge dilemmas. All right. Um, a patient that I'm going to call Mrs. Smith was in her mid-40s, and she had lived at home with her daughter before this latest hospitalization. She had a complicated medical history, including several strokes, acute renal failure, diabetes, left-sided weakness, and obesity, and she could not safely transfer from her wheelchair without the help of two or three people. In the past, she had refused to take her blood pressure medications, which was directly linked to her most recent stroke. She was also someone who was very independent, very um, determined to live on her own terms. She had been um, very vocal with her past clinicians about her ability to take care of herself and to really manage her own uh, living situation. The staff were really in a bit of a loggerheads with her because she needed hemodialysis three times a week, and she lived in an apartment that had steps to enter and leave, and she was unable to use those steps. And every single multidisciplinary team member agreed that the only safe discharge with this particular set of facts was to a skilled nursing facility. She had the capacity to make her own medical decisions, and she absolutely disagreed with the plan and refused to go to a skilled nursing facility. And the ethics team was called to think about her capacity and think about her ability to make an informed refusal of discharge recommendations. What do you think is the uniqueness of discharge ethics dilemmas? 
Christy? Um, one of the most critical issues here is the nature of the decision at hand. So when you think about you know, a hospital or a care setting, we typically have a discrete question and we query decisional capacity for that particular issue. Do you want to have this particular surgery? What do you think about chemotherapy? A discharge question is a much broader and in some ways less clear question. What does the person really need to understand to be able to make an uh, informed decision about the risk and benefits of various um, discharge options. And it's not just verbal. As Johnny said, there's a performative piece to this. So when we're looking at, is the person really able to execute as they believe they will be have we been able to give them a chance to imagine, to practice, to actually even be in that setting to challenge their beliefs? It can be a very complicated issue. And I think discharge is one that is not um, clearly just medical. It also gets at the community and um, personal values and social contextual elements in a way that um, strict medical decisions do not. I agree. I think that it's not really just the medical issue that's at hand. It's the biopsychosocial, you know, whole piece. And many times we hear from patients when they're discharging from the rehabilitation setting that they have a lot of concerns about risk of isolation if they were to go to a skilled nursing facility. There are heightened risks of emotional risks, risk of depression. There are other interests that people have. When you're talking about discharge, you're encompassing so many pieces of someone's life in that decision. And, you know, it involves where you're going to live, who you're going to live with, what you will be doing. Many times when people have new disabilities that they're working with or even greater uh, functional limitations. They are looking at a change maybe from how things were in the past, but other pieces of their life may not have changed quite so much, or they might need those pieces to continue in order for them to achieve the quality of life that they're looking for. I I think both of, the, both of you are right on. I think that the interesting thing is this is more of a societal or perhaps cultural moment as well. Um, when I first started working in this area, we didn't see as many um, disputes or discussions around discharge planning. The choices have become limited. People worry that if we know that the people may be potentially unsafe, that we need to protect them in some way, fears of a liability that may or may not be well-placed. And so there's also this um, bit of attention about what is the role of the healthcare professional in somebody who's actually more of an outpatient and living in the community. We often point out to some of our staff, many of our patients who come in for outpatient clinic visits, our team may say it would be unsafe to live in the community, yet they've been living there and they're doing fine. So why are we hyper-focused on this at the point of discharge? Um, I think the other interesting thing for me when you think about all the clinical ethics issues, this really gets to the conflict between respecting someone's choices and, and thinking about the concept of dignity of risk, which I can say more about later, and then trying to do what we believe is in the best interest of the patient and what's really the beneficent thing to do. And we don't always know what that is. 
We truly don't. So I find it a very gray area that perhaps more people should be thinking about. Christy, what are your thoughts on this first story? I think this case is so familiar. We deal with cases like this all the time in rehabilitation, and they cause a great deal of moral distress for rehabilitation team members. The cases also always are individual, but they're contextualized, and so the particulars matter. And patients who don't have a lot of social support or extended family, they have more limited financial means, so they can't afford a lot of -of out-of-pocket cost particularly can create difficulties. So I like to think of these cases as both individual and structural. And if we go back to thinking about Mrs. Smith and her decisional capacity, the kinds of questions we really have to probe with her can be very specific from her medical needs and asking her how she imagines For instance, how would she get to and from hemodialysis, given the fact that she has stairs and needs to go three times a week? Or how is she going to get from her bed into the wheelchair, given the fact that she needs two to three people to help her do it? She's also diabetic. She's got hypertension. She's going to need to be able to manage her medication. So you can break down all of the specific issues you can imagine Mrs. Smith is going to need to do and have her try to think with you about her solutions. But I have to say that on the rehab team side, sometimes we're too quick to think that an institution is going to be a superior solution. And I think a lack of familiarity with what it's like to actually live in a nursing home and having maybe an ivory tower view of the services that are provided there can be a problem. So in the old world of rehab, a patient like Mrs. Smith would have been taken home on a home visit, and she would have had a chance to actually demonstrate and practice in her home environment. That doesn't happen as much as it used to, but I think it's still a very interesting and important exercise for us all to imagine, because sometimes it's not a binary choice. Sometimes there are all sorts of interim and intermediate solutions that can be put in place to help patients like Mrs. Smith. Things like, you know, lift equipment. If there's not somebody who's able to help her get from bed uh, into a wheelchair, could she use a Hoyer lift? Could her daughter be taught how to help her get in and out of bed? What other equipment might help her? If she's going to be left alone for periods of time, would an emergency call system be an option? You know, getting in and out of the house for dialysis could be accomplished by an ambulance, picking her up and carrying her up and down the the stairs until we get benefits in place to either get some ramping for her steps or to move her to an environment which would be more wheelchair accessible. So helping her not just imagine what it's going to be like to, to be at home, but actually have to demonstrate and try out, you know, the performative aspect can be very helpful. So patients realize, you know, it's not going to be just like it was uh, before I came into the hospital because things are different. I'm sicker, I'm weaker, I'm more deconditioned, maybe I've had another stroke. The issues that can also be particularly difficult for rehab team uh, members are the issues that we have very little control over, like the health insurance and the community benefits. 
for a patient in Medicaid, they might be able to get home and community-based services through a waiver program. But the fact of the matter is, you can discharge a patient from a hospital to a nursing home immediately, no questions asked. If you want to send them home with a personal assistant and you want to get them equipment and home modifications, that can take months and even years. So there's an institutional bias in the way our healthcare system is set up, and that creates a lot of frustration for all of us who want to try to honor patient wishes and choices. Thanks, Christy. Great examples of the many layers and what you pay attention to, including the system gaps that create some of these discharge dilemmas. Dibjani, what would you add as you assess this scenario? Listening to Christy, I really, uh, many of the things she said really resonated for me. Um, we do see these kind of cases quite commonly. And the reason why ethics might get called is because uh, the negotiations have kind of broken down between the team members and the, the patient. Maybe the patient has decided they don't really want to talk to anybody anymore, and they're done, and they've made their decision, and they're leaving, and they are going to do it their way, which, of course, they have the right to do. And I think in some ways, for the clinical ethics consultant, when you're coming into that situation, giving people some space to to talk about what their interests are and to talk about what their perspectives are can give um, a little bit of room for um, alternatives to emerge. And the case that I mentioned, a backup discharge plan was also made where she was accepted to a facility while other arrangements were being made at the same time so that she could kind of have dual discharge planning going on. And that's what she ended up choosing after she went home. They had already tried a lot of things with her family and with other types of resources, but I fully agree with Christy, too, that our system is set up to kind of favor skilled nursing facilities and institutions rather than really support people in the community, which would be what people want in the community and would also be better economically, typically, for our healthcare system. Dibjani, is there an ethical framework that could help us understand either these individual or systemic behaviors and biases? The issue that I wanted to just talk about a little bit, which is really simple, but I teach on it consistently and I have to remind myself too, it's the concept of dignity of risk. It's a concept that's related to respect for persons and self-determination and attempts to minimize paternalism or parentalism. Basically, if you look up the dictionary definitions, that individuals are worthy of honor and respect even when they make decisions that may increase the possibility that something bad or unpleasant, such as an injury or a loss, will happen. And it's a term that's used more commonly among the disability rights community, and that's where the term first emerged. But it's a really important concept when we think about allowing people to make decisions that we don't agree with. They may be looking at different sources of data. They may have different biases towards the information that we're giving. Sometimes they don't trust the healthcare system, even though uh, we believe they should. They have a life history that speaks otherwise. And it's really allowing people also the dignity to fail and to try. They've made choices before they've come into the rehabilitation setting that we had no control over. So truly informing them, guiding them, supporting them, but then allowing them to make the choice they want to make. Um, it, it's really hard for healthcare professionals to do, and it's, um, it's something that we, we have to keep reminding ourselves. What would you call this hesitancy to support the dignity of risk within healthcare institutions? Is it a gap in experience, a bias? How would you name it? I think I would maybe call it something called ableism, which is the attitudes or discrimination people may have against people with disabilities. 
It's that they may be looking at the world very differently. I think healthcare providers and clinical ethicists, we really have a lack of imagination about what people can do in the community with disabilities. The person who wants to try to do the getting her family to bring her in and out to go to dialysis three times a week, we just can't even imagine that that would be something that that's possible. And in fact, when you give people options, we're often so surprised when people come back for outpatient visits because they've not only beat the odds, they made the what we thought impossible possible. So I think, and it really depends how you also define risk. Priya and I have had some cases where people are like, you think that's not safe? You think that's risky? Like, I think getting shot in my neighborhood is risky. Let's have a tough conversation about that. And that just, you know, makes you pause for a minute and think, yeah, like, let's even think about the terms we're using. What is safety and what is risk? Christy or Priya, anything you'd like to add? I think that the place that rehab team members sometimes get caught up is patients don't always have a full appreciation for what's different or what's new, particularly if you've had a stroke um, or something that can interfere with your ability to look at the world and understand situations. So the difference between a wish and a choice is also something that I think we struggle with in rehabilitation. So I agree with everything that Johnny said, um, but I think it's believing that the person has a full and complete appreciation of their situation since whatever health issue occurred and how that's going to impact them catches uh, rehab professionals in a bit of a bind. I think it can be hard too because rehab professionals often see, like you were mentioning, Christy, that they have they see themselves as have playing a great role in educating the patient, right, about how things are different, about um, how they might approach situations now differently. And there can be a bit of a tension between educating and kind of facilitating that understanding and then becoming sort of punitive, you know, in the language that's used or how situations are framed. So it's a tough one because we're asking people to think hypothetically about how they're going to now perform in maybe a home setting. And we want to facilitate an understanding of how things might be different, but to do so in a way that appreciates their perspective and can help to sort of bridge maybe the the gaps that, you know, are there without, you know, torquing too far um, on one side and saying, well, I'm really the expert and I know, you know, and this is, there, there's no other topic to further explore here. So with these biases, conflicts occur. Any advice on mediating the conflict these dynamics create in our first patient story? Yeah, sure. I, I do think that this case, um, as Dibjani was mentioning, this case is uh, fairly typical of some that we see in that there is conflict that comes up. In this case, Mrs. Smith, but in many others, the patient is saying there's no way that they will go to a skilled nursing facility. And the team is saying, well, it's absolutely not safe for you to go home without real access to you know, hemodialysis in this particular instance. So there's a conflict there that emerges, and it's really sort of this battle of these different positions. And Dipjani alluded to this, but I think it's just critical when we come in as ethics consultants in these situations to recognize, you know, what people's different positions are, but more so to try to understand and really break that down, unpack it so that we can understand where their interests really lie. So typically people will lead with the conclusion and 
kind of shield or hide some of their real interests, those needs and concerns that are driving that conclusion. So for Mrs. Smith, she might wish to remain at home because she has you know, support network within the building and she knows that people will care for her and that she too will care for other people there and that that is very, very important to her to be part of that community. And she feels that she will get a lot of support from that community that she would never be able to to get if she were to go to a skilled nursing facility. A lot of people too fear that if they are not able to remain in their home, they will lose access to that home. They won't be able to get back into that home and they will have no help in transitioning out of a skilled nursing facility into a home environment that could be even you know, a semblance of what this is to them. So I think these are various interests or concerns that people may have, like Mrs. Smith in these situations. And it's really important when we're coming in to be mindful of showing appreciation for their perspective, really trying to build an affiliation with the patient and taking that time, creating that space that Dibjani mentioned to be able to explore what their different perspective is. And then see how we might be able to facilitate communication between the patient and the team in those situations and explore alternatives such as dual discharge planning or, you know, coming up with the idea of getting a ramp in the apartment ASAP or facilitating transportation that would be effective. Debjani, would you offer us a second patient story for us to consider? Another patient I'll call Mr. Jones was in his 70s, had Parkinson's disease, and had been living in the community before he was admitted for rehabilitation after a fall. It was now time for him to discharge, and he had made some improvements, but the team had determined that he needed to use a wheelchair now for safe ambulation, and he disagreed. He wanted to use his old walker and was refusing the wheelchair. People weren't quite clear why he was absolutely adamant about this. When we went to go see him through the ethics consult service and understand his perspective some more, he stated that a wheelchair would not allow him to move freely in his apartment. His apartment was carpeted, and he liked having a carpet to, quote, cushion his fall. He said something like, when I fall, because I will fall again, I want it to be soft. This reasoning and perspective really frustrated the team. The physical therapist in in particular thought that he should never fall, and with the right supports, he didn't need to. The patient was living in a senior community and did not want to move and disrupt his routine or his friendships or the quality of life that he had living there for many decades. He also wanted to keep the carpet for what he defined as safety, not exactly the kind of safety our team was thinking of, but what he'd called safety. And he wanted to discharge to home without the wheelchair. The team also worried about the fact that he had decisional capacity, but lacked something called performative capacity, which involves performing and completing the tasks that you were able to verbalize but not necessarily do. Is it noncompliance? Is it refusal? Is it patient rights? Is it disability rights? And how do we tease apart and negotiate the complexities? When we were speaking with the patient, Priya, what are your thoughts on this discharge? The different perspectives dilemma? on sort of the carpet in the apartment and the need for the wheelchair was it seemed that all of a sudden the patient was, when we asked follow up questions about the carpeting and, and why the patient was in favor of that, how, he, how it had been helpful to him in the past, he really opened up about how he usually moves around in his apartment and you know, the different things that he needs to be able to get access to do and his concern that the wheelchair that um, had been identified would really not work for him 
to be able to navigate in his own apartment and accomplish the, the tasks that he wanted to. And so it's something that I think is important when we're addressing some of these issues and we find there are differing perspectives is really to take that step back, try to understand what the person's interests are, and really investigate. I think looking to collect as much information as we can and really engage with the patient to understand their perspective is critical so that we're able to to understand all the different pieces of it. And at the moment, I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure the team understands why the patient was really resistant to the wheelchair and was thinking that the patient just wasn't understanding why they were recommending it when there was just a whole different narrative that was also at play that had been missed. So, you know, I think this question of looking at a problem and having very different perspectives is very common with situations like this. Patients who don't walk oftentimes lose bone mass. They become more osteoporotic and they become more prone to fractures if they're not weight-bearing through their legs. They may have more difficulty standing and being able to get something out of a cabinet. So you think about what this gentleman's values and goals are, you know, those need to be part of the discussion. If he started to use a wheelchair all the time, it would change many things about his lifestyle. So he may be at a point where he knows that falls can happen. He had a fall and he may decide that he's just simply not at a point where he's ready for the wheelchair, but you can begin to forecast for him solutions that he could begin to consider, like working with his apartment building to take the carpet up if and when he gets to the point where he'd like to have the option of using a wheelchair or a scooter, uh, particularly for longer distances. And that's that's another sort of seeing if we can come up with intermediate options. It's not just either or, but beginning to allow the gentleman an opportunity to imagine the pros and cons of different kinds of mobility devices. I like to say in rehabilitation, I think a lot of our job is to help them imagine different potential chapters for that next phase of their life that's in the realm of possible. And it may not be something the individual is ready to embrace now, but just simply forecasting and presenting it as an option gives them also more opportunity to be self-determining and come back and make alternative choices or try things out when and if they're ready. Divjani, what dynamics would you comment on regarding this story? Sometimes in ethics consultations, Um, we often forget that there are a lot of human beings that are involved. And there's a large body of literature in social and clinical psychology about cognitive biases and the psychological processes that underlie perception and judgment. So as the human brain attempts to make sense and integrate large amounts of information, uh, cognitive shortcuts, for lack of a better term, streamline information processing. And these processes impact our judgment in real time and affect decision making, infect our interpretations, and probably definitely impact clinical ethics consultation. And there are several biases. I think two of them are really key. Uh, The first one is um, a confirmation bias. So across cultures and independent of educational level and language, humans tend to display what they call a confirmation bias. In our personal lives where we have choices, we surround ourselves by like-minded people. 
We favor information that confirms our own beliefs or hypotheses. We often interpret ambiguous evidence as supportive of our own beliefs. When processing information, we attend to and remember information selectively. So we may hear the exact same things and remember different pieces of it if it confirms what we already believe. And it's the way that humans make sense of complex and competing information. It's not pathological. It's something that's human, but it's happening. So for example, when you look at a patient who you believe is maybe obstinate or noncompliant or arguing a lot, even when they're not doing that, you may have that bias and you may be confirming what you already believe, that they're not going to agree with your plan. That's a very simple example, but you see things like that happening. And I think also there's another bias that is um, related to what we've been talking about. It's not really a cognitive bias, but more of a contextual factor. It's something called contact bias. So we interact with patients when they are physically and emotionally vulnerable, and sometimes they're at their worst, and we don't see the full context of the person's life. So this gentleman with the carpet, we didn't see him when he was thriving in the community, when he had figured out alternative ways. He has a progressive disease, but he had been really doing fine with a lot of creativity. Instead, we see the person who had the fall, who now wants to do something that's unsafe, and the things he's saying confirm our that belief rather than this other more richer picture. So I think sometimes during ethics consultation, taking a deep breath and pausing and thinking about what your own assumptions are and what the assumptions of the people sitting around the table are and trying to think of alternatives and being a little creative can go quite a long way. That's helpful, Deb Johnny. Priya? What assessment tool might you offer to our listeners? Well, you know, in in cases like the ones that we've mentioned here, where you really have these differing perspectives, it can almost seem like multiple truths, right? And usually there's conflict or at least communication gaps that you're finding. And so one thing that I've used a lot in my practice is to kind of use a process approach there's some strategies that I utilize in terms of addressing these discrepancies. And I would say there's there's sort of a three-pronged approach for this process. The first is to, for the clinical ethicist, to really step back and investigate what's going on. So that means, you know, identifying who has been involved with the patient, all of the different sort of stakeholders, and taking the time to meet with them, understand their perspective, clarify and understand those perspectives, and then look also at the medical record and at information that we have before us about the patient, you know, where they were in acute care, where they've come from, their demographics, as much as as we can understand from some of those um, sources, it's helpful as well. So the goal here is really to identify where's that gap between what we're hearing as the patient's perspective and the team's perspective, or maybe it's it's a surrogate who has a different perspective on discharge, you know, whomever it is, just really trying to understand that better. And then the second piece of that would be really to engage and to actively really solicit and show appreciation for the patient's preferences, give voice sometimes to patient's concerns if the patient has limited capacity, really scaling the discussions to the capacity level of the patient to understand their perspective better really trying to understand the context, the relationships at issue, and then oftentimes facilitating discussions between the patient and the medical team, or maybe it's the patient and the surrogate who's disagreeing with them. The goal there would be to get closer to what is going on and facilitate communication between the appropriate parties to identify what their common interests are so that we can kind of use that uh, to move forward. And, you know, there's some overlap between each of these pieces. 
But the last piece that sometimes, you know, maybe you don't need to get to, but other times you do, is to really use kind of negotiation tools to further bridge some of those gaps. And that would be, you know, really when you do have the conflict that persists, right? And you need to reach a resolution on your next steps. And there, I definitely rely on interspace negotiation techniques. I think we've touched on that in our session already, really digging for the concerns or the needs of the patient or the team instead of looking just at the position. But also a framework that I've relied on a lot in my practice is one that was espoused by Roger Fisher and Daniel Shapiro in their book, Beyond Reason, using emotions as um, you negotiate. And it's really an approach for negotiating with emotions. They call this the core concerns framework because, you know, it's not possible to attend to every single emotion that may come up in the course of a negotiation. But rather, if you look at five core concerns, they note that that will more likely than not yield agreements in terms of negotiating. So their five core concerns within that framework are first to express appreciation, second to build affiliation or connectedness, third to respect autonomy, which I think every ethics consultant (laughs) has a concern with, fourth to acknowledge status, and Fifth, to choose a fulfilling role in the course of the negotiation that will be effective and really facilitate that space in order to identify common interests in some type of an agreement. Discharge Ethics Dilemmas, we have learned, offer unique features. The advice and tools offered by our guests have been tested and found to offer practical support. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflection. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. (laughs) 